Hello, everyone. My name is Patrick Curran, and along with my friend Greg Hancock, we make up Quantitude. We're a podcast dedicated to everything quantitative, ranging from the relevant to the completely irrelevant. This episode is part one of a two-part series where we explore all the aspects of submitting and reviewing a grant, and we focus on our own experiences at the National Institutes of Health and the Institute of Education Science. In today's episode, we also talk about turkey legs, using conflict of interest to get out of work, equating how sausage is made with faculty meetings, an acronym-based drinking game, roller coasters, and Pink Floyd the Wall. As always, we appreciate you joining us, and we hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome, everybody. Uh, welcome to Quantitude with my good friend, Patrick Curran, uh, who's not going to talk right now. Don't talk. Okay. <laughs> Excellent. Um, all right. Today is going to be part one of a two-parter. We have an episode on the grant review process. And in the first part, what we're going to talk about will be really just the process itself, how, uh, how it goes from the initial grant call all the way through uh, what happens when you're in the room, and even a little bit about what happens after the review is over. And then in part two, we will talk about uh, things that we like to see in the grants that we are reviewing, things we don't like to see, just generally providing some tips on writing grants and that, that have come from our experience. Patrick, do you have anything to add to that? So you're saying that we're cutting a double album? We are. Like, uh, uh, what's, a good, what's an example of a double album? The White Album by The Beatles? Seriously? Wow, that's that's harsh. Dear Prudence, won't you come out to play? I would go with uh, Rush Exit Stage Left, which is excellent. It's a live one, if I'm not mistaken. Right. So there are a lot of live or greatest hits double albums. I grew up listening to Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. I'm going to drop the middle-aged man, Mike, right here and go with the wall. Pink Floyd. Done. So we'll go with that. So we are going to aspire to Mm -hmm. Pink Floyd's The Wall. (laughs) Make you comfortably numb. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. So really what you need to do, everyone, is um, get high and buy a laser and listen to this episode at midnight. I thought, Greg, in the spirit of learning how the sausage is made when you submit a grant, is I was thinking driving in this morning in preparation for this, of I have these weird thoughts of other things that you really, really don't want to know how they're made. The sausage is the obvious one. I actually know how sausage is made, and I still eat hot dogs and brats, and they are my very favorite. But I was thinking about what are other things that you really don't want to know how they're made. And this was on your eight-minute commute? I actually had to wait at a stoplight twice, so Uh it was nine, and so that kind of sucked. One of my favorite things to eat in the entire world is go to the North Carolina State Fair. Now, I know the State Fair has come up on prior episodes. Mm -hmm. This is obviously a key event for me. But it's the turkey leg, right? The roasted turkey leg. And there's nothing more barbaric. They're five bucks. Mm -hmm. How they raise a turkey, slaughter a Mm -hmm. turkey, distribute a turkey, cook a turkey, and hand it to you for $5. (laughs) That alone, I don't want to know. But it's the most like Conan the Barbarian thing where they hand over the turkey leg. And then you walk through the fairway just gnawing on the turkey leg. And all I can picture in my mind is the factory where they have some turkey leg pulling machine (laughs) or however it is that they get these. And so that's one that, you know, I would rather just enjoy my $5 turkey leg without thinking about how that's actually obtained. That's the go-to for any Renaissance fair. If you were to attend a Renaissance fair, not that... I have ever attended several Renaissance fairs, but walking around with turkey leg is is key, <clears throat> as was the uh, uh, the leather boots. Um, let's see things I don't want to know how they're made. Well, I will tell you one of the ugliest things 
and it's not food related because if we go food related, then we can just go straight to the FDA's allowable mouse droppings and toenail clippings and all of that, which, <laughs> which like you doesn't stop me from eating stuff. One of the ugliest things is probably how academic decisions get made. Uh, <laughs> honestly, are you equating this to toenails I, and I, rat feces? Most of my life is metaphoric sausage. Uh, I, I will say, yeah, it's, it's painful to watch a group of professors try and hash through some decision uh, for those of you out there who haven't seen it, brace yourselves. You got you got anything else that's that's besides your turkey leg? Well, it's hard to top like a ten year <laughs> review. I mean, I have spam mm-hmm. down, but spam is like downright acceptable <laughs> compared to a faculty meeting. I think mine is more a meta issue, and it's anything that squirted, like that some industrial machine squirts out, whether it be Velveeta, whether it be toothpaste, whether it be the inside of an Oreo. Uh-huh. Is I, I think it's the, the squirting aspect. <laughs> you had another mic drop on the faculty meeting as I, I kind of, you know, squirt Velveeta into my spam and cover it in wet cat food and I'm perfectly fine. <laughs> Other than a tenure meeting that he, I don't want to be at. You just described the Quantitude Commissary. <laughs> <laughs> Do we have a commissary? <laughs> Didn't tell you. Um, All right. No, no I, I think I, you're. I will. <laughs> it's it's cheese whiz Friday. On that mode, we are going to introduce a new quantitude drinking oh. game. All right. So if you haven't gotten high and, and turned on the fog machine and lasers for the double album aspect, we'll now transition into a drinking game. Everybody has to take a drink over the next twenty or thirty minutes when we encounter an acronym. All right, because when we start talking about grants, grant submission, grant review, there simply is no term that can't be not only made into an acronym, but an acronym that you can't pronounce. Using those acronyms is still not really going to keep us to 20 to 30 minutes. I really liked how ambitious you were there. Um, (laughs) There's no no way you could possibly keep it to 20 to 30 minutes. Pull out your favorite drink, line it up in front of you, make sure you have enough because you're going to need it. Because we are going to talk about NIH and IES and the process of grant submission. So you're already two drinks behind. <laughs> Greg, do you want to start? What is IES? Sure. Well, IES stands for Institute of Education Sciences, and it is the funded arm of the Department of Education that that sponsors research. And that research can cover a whole wide variety of areas, the kinds of stuff that you associate with education, like reading, writing, and arithmetic. But it also gets into social and behavioral outcomes, special education. And in fact, they have uh, they have a panel dedicated specifically to statistical and research methodology. So there's a lot of stuff, uh, a lot of stuff going on there. A lot of different panels that you can be a part of what we would call applied as well as methodological. What do you got? So I hang out with folks from National Institutes of Health. So everybody grab a beer. It's NIH or the NIH. I have been very, very fortunate over the years to have a lot of my work funded through NIH. I'm going to rattle off numbers, not that I knew them more than half an hour ago, because I I thank God for Google. I don't know how you and I got through grad school without Google and Wikipedia. How many uh, papers did you open? Merriam-Webster's defines consciousness as, and so now it's Wikipedia defines. NIH is comprised of 27 separate institutes. So it's National Institute on drug abuse and mental health and aging. A small number relate to the kind of things we do in behavioral sciences. So big ones in town, not exhaustive, but National Institute on Mental Health, National Institute on Drug Abuse, on Alcoholism and Alcohol Abuse, uh, National Institute on Child Health and Development, NICHD. Cheers. Ah, Drink. (laughs) I told you, man, this is going to be a long episode. They serve as kind of the mothership of supporting research and science in uh, health-related outcomes in, in the U.S., Nice. And do they have a methodological uh, arm as well there? So that is interesting. No, they don't. 
that's a topic for another episode of, of if you're doing quantitatively oriented work, how do you go about getting funding for it? I have found over a 20-year period that NIH is supportive of quantitative methods mm-hmm. development, and they've uh, dedicated a lot of resources across uh, you know a lot of different areas of work to support those kind of things. And I've been very, very fortunate to have some of that support myself. But within NIH, you really need to embed it in a substantive question. And so my own topical area that, that I do research in is, uh, you know, risk and protective factors for drug and alcohol use. And so there's a lot of natural methods development and longitudinal modeling and, you know, missing data and measurement and things. But no, you, there is not an institute or even a branch within an institute that is solely dedicated to methodological mm-hmm. research. N- NSF does have one, National Science Foundation, cheers. Uh, the Methodology, Measurement, and Statistics uh, section within NSF. Um, and to your point about things being embedded uh, within other things, IES, even though they have a separate section dedicated to statistical and research methodology, it really is with an eye toward education and you have to make very clear as i'm sure we'll talk about at some point later very clear the role that it plays in education its direct applicability and so forth so not too different i would say in the end all right so you want to get a grant funded you want you you want some resources to support your work and not only do we need to pay the lights but it maybe at your institution it reduces your teaching load to free up time you're able to hire research assistants you're able to maybe generate some summer salary to support working over the summer. You got an idea, you write it up. We'll talk on another episode about how you go about writing a grant, crafting a a methodological idea. But here we're starting with the premise that you have a grant and you've decided to submit it either to NIH or IES. And so what happens next? So Greg, say I'm an educational researcher. I have completed my PDF and I want to go to IES. What happens? Well, I'll tell you, let me... Uh, let me think about the process that we will talk about in three chunks. And you see, you let me know if this works for you. We can talk about the pre-review process, you know, sort of essentially what happens before you get in the room. And then we can move into the in the room phase, uh, the sausage part. And then a little bit maybe about what happens after that. Is that okay to break it up into those three chunks? Does that make sense? Yep, makes okay. sense. Um, so I'll talk a little bit about the pre-process And then you jump in as well, because I think there are a lot of similarities, but it's important to point out some of the differences. So all of these proposals go into a a giant electronic clearinghouse Um, at IES. You you post them to IES through some agencies. You go through grants.gov or a variety of other portals. And then they are collated, organized, and they are listed out for all of the people who have been tapped to be a part of this review process. Um, On that point, I might ask you, uh, how do people tend to get tapped in your world uh, for the review process? Give me 30 seconds and I'll give the kind of structure because I need to dive in and then we'll back out about, you know, when you submit the grant. I also Googled these numbers so that I would pretend to look Mm -hmm. smart. There are 27 institutes. Back in the day, um, my very first grant, I submitted directly to NIDA, National Institute on Drug Abuse. And a number of years ago, they reorganized things so that it wasn't uh, structured by institute, but more by topical area, uh, scientific question. And they developed what's called the Center for Scientific Review, or the CSR. Cheers. Drink. For listeners, just know that Greg and I are playing along with this <clears throat> as well. Excuse me. And Greg is is enthusiastically playing along with this. I, so, it's great. Um, <laughs> I love you, man. <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. I'm going to... The mute's going on, folks. So uh, CSR, then, you, when you submit your grant, it goes to CSR. Um, CSR oversees 25 what are called integrated review groups, or IRG. <laughs> Cheers. There are 25 of those. And then those IRGs oversee what are called scientific review groups or, wait for it, SRGs. All right. As of this morning, there are 175 of those. And those are what, when I was a younger man, you would call study section. That's the review group that it goes to. And those are, are scientists, faculty, researchers out in the profession who are recruited and, and are in the room. We'll get to that in a little bit. They are recruited through what is called, I kid you not, the SRO. 
That's the scientific review officer. Ready for this? Everybody fill up. The SRO oversees the SRG as assigned by the IRG that's under the auspices of the CSR that's governed by NIH. And they recruit reviewers and they build a roster that are experts in whatever the topical area of that integrated review group is. So that's kind of how they get in the room. Wow. That was remarkably complete. And I'm almost blackout drunk. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. But kind of weren't you before we even started <laughs> this? I mean, okay. Shh. Uh, so one of the one of the reasons I sort of cut to the chase is that IES doesn't quite work that way. IES has a number of different panels. You submit directly to that panel, whether it's social and behavioral or special ed or or the methodology one, and then you have the people right there who have been assigned to that panel. And the people who have been assigned to the panel tend to be people who are pretty well experienced in these areas. Usually they're the people who are doing lots and lots of research. So uh, they are the people, believe it or not, they generally are the people you want reviewing the work that you have submitted. So very similar. The thing is, and this is a tricky thing in working with NIH. I understand the mechanism and I agree with it. I mean, you're, they're dealing with, right, NIH, their, their budget is something like $24 billion, $25 billion. This is a massive entity. I can't choose an institute or an IRG or an SRG myself for where my project will go is what I have to do is write a title and write an abstract that is going to increase the conditional probability that it'll go to the group that I want. So if you're listening to this and you're thinking about a a grant idea that you have, I strongly recommend go online and they have the rosters of each of these review groups and you can pull up who are the people that are in them and you can see who are you citing, who do you want to reach, who would you like to evaluate your work. But then you've got to start kind of backdating checks to get your project to that group. Now, there's this thing, and it did kind of freak me out the first time I saw this. There is literally a tool called the Assisted Referral Tool, or the ART. Cheers. And you enter a title, and I kid you not, it will generate the IRGs that it would likely go to. There is an AI element of this. How you write your title will determine to which group it gets. And so you have to be very careful about the keywords and the abstract that you use. And it sounds like in IES that you submit directly to the panel to which you would like to have it reviewed. So once it's at the panel in IES, then what happens? Well, it's in this great electronic void where it gets collated by whoever is facilitating the process. I'm sure it has some acronym that I don't remember. But all of this information will get posted for all of the reviewers to see. And not all of the grant information, but there will be a list of the titles of the projects. There might be an abstract at IES. Uh, And then it will also list, and this is really important, all of the personnel who are affiliated with a project. And the reason that's important is because at this point, still well before we've even looked at the proposals themselves, is that each of the reviewers must identify any conflicts of interest that he or she has with any of the proposals. And conflicts of interest might, I mean, there's there are formal definitions of it, although there are a lot of gray areas, but you know, financial conflict of interest with a particular proposal, uh, personal relationship, professional relationships. Uh, I assume there's some kind of identification process like that with NIH as well, right? It comes a little bit later in the stage for NIH. The proposals will go to the review group. There's huge variability. And just if you're listening to this is to stress, there's a lot of variability in across groups and within groups. You know, Greg and I are really touching on broad strokes of how the process works. Mm -hmm. Typically, you know, maybe 60, 80, even 100 applications will go to a review group. The scientific uh, review officer, the SRO, will assign those to specific people. And then I will look. So if I'm a reviewer, I'll get the grants that I've been assigned. And that's when I look at the COI. And Mm -hmm. so I will make sure that you know, have, like you said, is they have very clear, you know, definitions of this. Do you have financial interests? Is it a student? Things like that. Now to younger folks is a recommendation I would have is be extraordinarily liberal 
with your identification of conflict of interest because then you can't review that grant. And if you're successful, you know, your initial eight or 10 grants will go down to one or two. Uh, I've identified conflict of interest with somebody's last name rhymed with mine. Uh, One was a girl who wouldn't go to prom and they have the same first name. And I thought that I wasn't in a position to be an objective reviewer. And so you you can use conflict of interest to get out of work. Um, But I got to tell you, the SRO figured that out in about half a second. And uh, it turned out that she put in a criteria that I could pretty much review my own grant uh, if it meant that I didn't get out of the assignment. So Mm -hmm. yes, as you self-identify COA, and then that kind of narrows down the pool uh, of the proposals that you would be available to offer a review on. Yeah. And so the take-home message uh, for the listener is that really every effort is made to make sure that whoever has their eyes on your proposal ultimately someone who who doesn't have a conflict of interest and you're going to get the fairest shot at a review from somebody who doesn't have any conflict of interest or whose name doesn't rhyme with yours or who didn't date a neighbor who, you know, yeah, right. You get it. All right. So once all the conflicts of interest have been identified, it, it, it sounds like at NIH what happens is that they might then give you some additional ones based on the original ones. But at, at IES, the, the assignments will then be made afterwards. But it comes to the same thing, I suppose. Uh, so proposals are assigned. Whew, then you have to do the review. Do you have any rituals that go with your review <laughs> process? Or <laughs> Well, very briefly at NIH, there are three levels of assigned review. So again, let's pretend I'm on a study section and I get the email that says your grants are available. Their numbers vary, but uh, if you have an SRO who likes balance, I will be assigned nine grants. Three is primary, three is secondary, and three is tertiary. And primary is you are the the head reviewer. And and we'll talk a little bit about what happens when you're in the room to allude to what's going to happen is you're the one who presents it to the group. You describe the study and so on. That's the primary reviewer. Secondary reviewer is your goal is to add to the primary and tertiary is to add to the first two. So the same thing at IES, except those determinations aren't made until after you have done the review. So you don't know what, at least on the panels that I've served on, um, you don't know which you're going to be. And you certainly can't see anybody else's review prior to conducting your own. So everybody uh, puts their reviews in. And then a determination is made about who will be primary, secondary, and tertiary when, you, when you're preparing for the panel itself. Uh, that's interesting. So to clarify, I can't see anyone else's reviews when I do mm-hmm. mine either. I know we're jumping around in the timeline a little bit, mm-hmm. but I sit down on the couch. Well, first you procrastinate <laughs> for three weeks and you pretend <laughs> that you're not on the review group panel. Um, and you do really important things in life like ridiculous podcasts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And so you sit on the couch, you do the review, part two of the wall will be, you know, what does that entail? But I finish my review and then I upload it uh, into the, it's called eCommons, N-I-H drink, Mm eCommons. And then there's a lockdown, it's like seven days before Uh, There's a lockdown phase, and then you can go and read other reviews, but you can't Mm -hmm. modify your own. Yours are truly objective. You can't see what anybody else has done uh, until it's called the reading phase at NIH, where you can see other reviewers, but not your own. But I think the distinction, and it is an interesting one, I know when I pick up a grant, uh, whether I'm first, second, or third reviewer on it, and it admittedly throttles how closely I read it. Because if I'm a tertiary reviewer, I know I'm doing kind of more of a 30,000 foot review as opposed to delving into the weeds. You alluded to something in something you said, and I did want to get to that as part of the pre-process before we move into the room. And that is, you said the ones that are going to be discussed, or you said some version of that. And that implies that there's some kind of triage that goes on ahead of time. At IES, they are literally triaged. There's some uh, some review officer who goes through and ranks them based on the preliminary ratings that they have received and decides which ones get advanced to the panel or not. There's something similar 
at NIH, yeah? Yes. And so when I upload my reviews, and we'll talk about this in part two, there is an overall impact score, and then there are five criterion scores. And we'll talk about this later, but they're one to nine. One is the best, nine is the worst, five is in the middle. When I upload my reviews, I put in my impact score and I put in my my reviewed criteria. When those are locked down, they are rank-ordered, And there's literally, I mean, it varies group to group, but they literally will, the term is lower half, is those proposals that have a mean overall impact score from the three reviewers uh, that that fall below the halfway point, the median, are scored. So the PIs get scores, they get the written comments, but it's not discussed in the group. And so, yeah, maybe half of the applications will actually be discussed. Now, a nice fail-safe mechanism they have at NIH, anybody at the table can advocate that a proposal that was lower half can be discussed. And I've been at a lot of meetings that it doesn't have to be even a strong advocate is just to say, you know, I think this is more promising than the scores reflect. I'd like to request that it be discussed. Yeah, that's a nice segue actually into what goes on in the panel. So let's transition from what happens before to what happens when you're actually live in the room, because that will be one of the first things that goes on. Is there anything about going to the panel or or anything else that that comes to mind as you think about this process? Because for me, it's just a drive, right? For me, I just hop in the car and go into DC typically. Now, here's the, the, the great point that I always love to remind you almost in every episode. I jump on a plane and fly to D.C., which actually takes less time than you driving to D.C. <laughs> yeah, the, the, true. the Raleigh to National flight gear up to gear down is about 35 minutes. It's 40 minutes if you take off into the south, 35 if you take off into the north. I fly up, get off at National, take the yellow line to the Crystal City Marriott. I can actually go up and never step outdoors as the yellow line goes into the basement of Crystal City. And I go right up to the meeting room, wherever that might be. I love the actual review process. Now, I love it in the same way that I love roller coasters, which is I really, really hate roller coasters. Uh, I have twin teenage daughters. One is addicted to roller coasters. I'm trying to chalk up some dad points and I go on them with her. I hate them. I hate every minute of them. I get off at the end and there is a dopaminergic rush of where that's really cool. Let's do it again. And then I hate the entire process. That's pretty much grant review for me. So you walk into the room. There's a who's who of, you know, the scientific community around you. You settle in at the table. And the, that's the roller coaster clickety clacking up that first hill. What is your reaction walking into the room? Inadequacy, mm. I think. You look around the room and you go, yep, I've read that person's stuff and that person's <laughs> stuff and that person's stuff. And, you know, by now you interact with people after a certain number of years, you interact with most people. But, but there's also that sense that e- each person has this identity that you've crafted in your head of them because you often know them mainly from, you know, their work in print and not necessarily from any personal interaction. So when you get to flesh out the other 95% of the person uh, in the room. It's funny. It's like, oh, that's that guy or, or that's her. Okay. All right. I've been on a lot of panels by now and I, I get butterflies every mm-hmm. single time I walk into that room. Uh, I would say that with many things in life and as I tell my kids, it, that's probably healthy to have the butterflies, to be worried about doing a good job. And, and if I'm bringing butterflies to the review of your proposal, that's probably a good thing because I really want to make sure that I'm doing a good job. There's this bizarre thing at NIH. NIH won't buy coffee. And so one of the biggest things is you have to bring your own coffee. They'll fly you up. They'll put you in the Crystal City Marriott, but you got to bring your own cup of coffee. And so you have to plan ahead for that. But everybody sits down, there's opening remarks, whatnot. There's a chair of the committee who is a member of the scientific community. He or she is kind of one of us, right? Uh, uh, They're a researcher, a faculty somewhere. But then sitting next to her is the SRO, the scientific review officer, and they're the official NIH representative. And the two of them jointly run the meeting. One of the most fun parts of this is they say, all right, we're going to talk about this, this proposal. And then there are one, two, and three reviewers. 
And each one gives an initial scoring of their impact score. So remember, one to nine, five is the middle. I will say my initial overall impact score is a three. And then the other person says a two, the other person says a four. Where things get really fun is the first person will say two, the second person will say three, and I will say eight. And it's really fun because it's like in middle school again, because the entire room will go, ooh. <laughs> the, the entire room of exceedingly accomplished researchers. Yeah, is right. like, you know, looking forward to this like ooh. playground fight. Uh-huh. I triple dog dare you. <laughs> and so you uh-huh. each announce and then I present the grant. And then I move into the criteria. So we'll talk about this in part two. There's significance, investigators, innovation, approach, environment. I talk pros and cons. And then I kind of wrap up. It turns to the secondary reviewer uh, who is explicitly charged with only adding something unique. So maybe they'll repeat something they liked, but it's like, well, in addition, I particularly like this or a concern I had. And then tertiary is that. And then the chair will moderate a discussion. And are there questions? It'll, you know, and and again, the roller coaster is whipping around because somebody whose book you own, you know, on your desk will say, well, you said this, but then you said that. Don't you feel like those are contradictory? Um, And I either pretend to not speak English or uh, have a minor brain aneurysm and I'll turn over to the second reviewer to respond. That only works once. Uh So you got to keep that in your back pocket. And then a really good chair who I liked, she would say, all right, I'm not hearing anything new. Mm -hmm. Uh, Does anybody have anything to add? And there will be silence. And then she is charged with the unenviable task of giving a synopsis. And she'll say, so here's what I've heard. Here are the pros. Here are the cons. They'll turn back to the reviewers and say, please announce your final scores. And so I will say, you know, two and three, and somebody else will say four. And then the chair will say, will everyone else record their scores? And they all will write down what their scores are based on the discussion and based on the the three primary reviewers. And then there's a neat little thing is if anybody in the room is going to score outside of the minimum and maximum, they have to announce that. I think it's a little uh, safety mechanism where somebody can't give a really low score, really high score outside of the range without it being recorded. I like that. Yeah, mm-hmm. IES overlaps a lot with what you said. And I, I'm going <laughs> to add something new uh, in certain parts and maybe maybe be redundant here. One thing that I want to make clear to anybody who's sort of new to this process is that at the very beginning, after the chair has welcomed everybody, set the tone, introduced everybody, etc. Um, but before you start reviewing the first one that's up, all of the people who have conflicts of interest uh, must leave the room. Uh, so not only do you declare the conflicts when you're about to make your reviews out before you get to the room, in the room, you physically leave. There's no one in there who is unduly influencing the process one way or the other. You, you, The room has to be cleared. In fact, the scores of the reviewers aren't even posted until those people are outside the room. So there's no, there's no clue about what's going on. Those folks leave the room, and then there's some life that people with conflicts of interest have outside uh, outside the room while the review goes on. Same same with you, right? Yeah, exactly. And then it's kind of fun is there's a guy over in Biostats here on campus. And if I stood up and walked out right now, I could get to his office in eight minutes. He and I were on a panel together and we became professional friends, not super close, but we really enjoyed each other's company. We only talked when we were stepped out of the room and stood in the hallway And over the years, developed this very nice friendship. Never once did I walk across campus to see him. But so it was this conflict of interest friend that I had. Uh We'll always have DC. Uh Uh, Do me a favor Um, and never talk like that again. Would you mind? Okay, sorry. Just... Um, sure. One thing I will add about the synthesis at the end, or you, I, you might have called it a summary or something mm-hmm. else, but uh, at IES, the synthesis, the job of the synthesis, synthesis. Say that again. Synthesis. What was that? <laughs> Say it again. The, uh, it rotates. Um, what rotates? So the. the, 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 the okay. <laughs> yes. So so someone is charged with writing up 
a summary. So it's not just, it doesn't go to one person throughout the whole time as it does at NIH. And at NIH, that is a, it is a horrible job. It's a critical job, though, because you're capturing the record of what went on. And the job is not to... Uh, is not to reiterate everything that's already in the reviews, but it's really to capture the tenor of the conversation in the room to give the the proposal writer as much of a sense of what went on as possible. Because in the end, you don't just want scores, you want words, you want narrative, you want, you want to understand what, what went on. And it, whenever it comes around to you being the synthesizer it is just the most high stakes thing that you can do so i like the nih one where there's someone who is who has agreed to do this uh, as grueling a task it is it, it, i yes it comes around to you and you're like oh oh god I don't. you know because because you have to take down everything live while people are saying it you have to craft it into a coherent narrative you have to read it back to everybody and then the panel chair will say, does this capture what we said? Does anybody want to add anything to it? And oh my, oh my God, the pressure. But it's very important. So I, don't, uh, I want to make sure that folks understand that's how it goes. And then as you said, people finalize their scores. The rev- uh, whatever scores are posted are erased. And then the people who had conflicts of interest are, wa- are welcomed back into the room. So they, don't, they never heard anything. They never saw anything. And then you go on to the second proposal. <laughs> and that, that first one generally takes quite a while. And, uh, it, you know, by the time you're at the 12th proposal, you all are really good. Maybe you're really good by the time you're at the fifth proposal. Um, but there's a certain amount of the group finding itself, finding its identity, getting a flow, and the chair getting a sense of who's on the panel and how they interact so that she or he can learn who to get a little bit more out of and who maybe to try and moderate a little bit. There are some people who are really chatty and other people who are maybe a little bit more shy or nervous in the room sometimes, in fact. But then you move on to the next one and you guys as a group get your groove and it's exhausting. It is exhausting and exciting at the same time. A typical Mm -hmm. review group at NIH, and again, huge variability, but it's usually um, a day and a half. So you have a long first day, uh, you know, often you'll go out for dinner uh, as a group at night, which is great fun, and then half day the next day, and then people fly home. The dinner, if you're a, a young professional and haven't done this before, and you go up and do it, I got to tell you, and Greg, I would imagine you have a similar uh, recommendation, is everybody who does research should be on these panels at some point. Not only return to the system, right, is my feeling is if you're going to take a couple million bucks from the federal government, you owe it back to the system. This is how it works, right? Mm -hmm. If you publish papers, you need to review papers. If you take grants, you need to, you know, contribute to that process. But also to just see how the system works is incredibly insightful when you go back home and then write your own grant. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you do this, so one, absolutely do it for professional development. But two, if you do it and you go out for dinner, my recommendation is order a porterhouse steak order a fifth of Glenn Levitt and a fifth of Glenn Fittich if you're after it. And the reason is, is I went up as a a postdoc once and I ordered an ice cube and half a tomato. And it got to the end and they got the bill and they said, okay, let's see, it's uh, $1,200. There are 14 of us. What's 1,200 over 14? And I wanted to scream out, way too much for a freaking ice cube and half a tomato. Yeah. Anyway, is, is eat big because they're going to divide the check evenly no matter what. Important tip, kids. And, yeah. <laughs> right. And so then what happens, there's one little thing left that's kind of nice is uh, you move on to the next and the next and the next, as Greg said. Um, mm-hmm. But what's cool is you actually have an opportunity as a reviewer to modify your comments that you uploaded uh, Mm -hmm. to reflect the discussion in the meeting. And this is one thing that I really like about the process is, right, I'm sitting on the couch. My kids are in bed. Uh, I got usually a cat, you know, sitting on my head. I've, I've got Miles Davis on the stereo. You're reading this all by yourself. When you have a discussion, there are things you see, there are things you might learn is, is sometimes I'm wrong, right? As you say, well, this was a a concern and somebody will point out, well, no, not really. And so after the discussion, 
I have an opportunity to modify my comments. Now, I can't modify my scores, but I can modify my comments, and then it gets locked down. Uh, the Borg collates it in some way, and then it goes back to the, the PI. And at NIH, it's called the summary statement. And mm-hmm. you get you know, all the information, who was on the panel. It's this big PDF. And then we'll talk about this in another episode, but at NIH, the most important number you're looking for is the percentile. So where does your score rank relative to the other proposals? Because the percentile doesn't solely dictate whether you're going to get funded, but it sure shoves it in that direction. Yeah. Um, thing that I will, uh, that I want to underscore, which is similar to IES, uh, is that reviewers do have an opportunity to reflect on what they have done. Panelists have an opportunity. At, at IES, there's a certain time window where you can go back in and change your comments. Um, you can't go in and change your scores after the fact. However, and I think this is very important, uh, the scores that you provide as a reviewer are really viewed as initial scores. So after the conversation, uh, you can change your scores. And in fact, at IES, what happens is all of the original reviewer scores are, are digitally posted up on this monitor. And then you go around to the original people and, and they might say, yeah, you know, I was a bit harsh. Let's lift, let's raise this criterion score. Or, you know, now that I've heard some of the concerns expressed, I'm going to lower this score. Uh, I really like that. I like people being willing to make adjustments, although some people don't. Uh, I like people thinking out loud. I like people learning from each other. It really is intended to be a dynamic uh, team effort. Then you do go back and you beef up some of the commentary that you have, again, in the spirit of making sure that the reviewer gets the most out of the process. So as Greg says, then the next one comes and the next one comes and, you know, a panel may do... 40 or 50 reviews in a day and a half. And it is an exhausting, but also just really fun and exciting kind of process. And and again, it's one that if you have the opportunity, uh, I think both of us would strongly recommend being part of that process. And there are kind of two roles you can play is very often I've been a guest member of a committee. And so, you know, there'll be some critical number of proposals that have longitudinal modeling or measurement or something like that, something that I have some some familiarity with. And so I'll go up for like one panel meeting. But then there are standing members, and they're the ones who are really committed. I mean, I deeply respect standing members on the committee. It is a lot of work and a big commitment, but also is critically important to how how the process moves forward. And so I am not a standing member, but not only are you a standing member, but you are a chair. Is that correct? Yeah, it's correct. Um, (laughs) The the methodological panel uh, at IES, I I chair that and and will be for, for the next five years. I am so jacked up as a reviewer when I'm in that room and so completely spent Uh, at the end of it. Like you said, I I feel like I have to have every single synapse firing for in in service of the process. And just because I'm in front of a bunch of smart people, you know, it's kind of nerve wracking. I I don't even want to go have the ice cube and half a tomato afterwards. (laughs) I just, I just want to go collapse in my room, you know, and, uh, and prepare for the next half day or whatever. Uh, As someone who chairs a session, there's this whole extra level of responsibility that you have, and you you really don't want to look like an idiot in front of these other people, but you go through all, and maybe this is good for some more junior people to hear, I go through self-doubt all the time. Everything I do, you know, why am I in this chair? I don't even know if I belong in the other chair. So it, there's pretty much every aspect of my life where I, you know, I have that sense of imposter. So so I have to know all the procedures associated with IES. I know how to have to keep this thing moving. And something I alluded to earlier is just to make sure that everybody feels that they have a voice in the process trying to manage those people who are a little bit more chatty, trying to get some things out. And I will actually call on people, and I don't know how popular this is uh, as a chair, 
But if there's an area of expertise that I know a particular panelist has and that panelist hasn't commented on something, I might call that person out in the in a friendly way. I might say, you know, I, I know that this is an area that you've done some work on, so I'm curious to hear if there's anything that was discussed that was resonating with you in particular. And I just try to get those people out because, like I said, they might be a little bit more shy. They might be a little bit less experienced. They might feel like other people are more expert than they when that's not in fact the case. For every bit I'm I am completely wrung out as a reviewer at the end of a chairing session, I have nothing. I, I feel like I, I really don't. Yeah. Like right, right. The this the thing that they say in sports is leave it all on the court. And that's what I feel like I do at the end of one of these panels. I have left every single shred of me in that room and I just stagger out um at the end of whatever it is, a day and a half, you know. Yep. Um, it's grueling. I so admire chairs of these meetings. And like I said, I admire, I deeply admire uh, uh, the people who commit to being a regular, a regular member on these. But one of the greatest tools I feel like of a chair and of fellow members is the hairy eyeball. And I don't know how much you use the hairy eyeball. But I got to tell you, if you folks haven't figured out already, is I am capable of talking and talking and talking, and we could lose the the internet connection, and I will continue talking and talking. And when I'm presenting a grant, I do have a tendency to go on a bit, and maybe I'll talk about a really nice taco I had the other night, and then it reminds me of a Monty Python skit I saw. And boy, to get 28 hairy eyeballs all at once when you've hit about the four-minute mark and you better get moving. I have had like gift baskets of hairy eyeballs, like like a hand-woven basket with a bow on it with 28 bloody hairy eyeballs set in front of me. And so, yeah, one of the greatest tools uh, available in grant review is the hairy eyeball. Nice. Um, <laughs> speaking I, of... I might... <laughs> Speaking of, no, 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 I have to hear this segue. <laughs> I, don't, I don't care what else is going on. Just go ahead. Speaking so of hairy eyeballs. The podcast is is audio. Greg and I are on a Zoom and, and we're looking <laughs> at one another. And as I was telling the hairy eyeball story, I can't help but think I kind of got a hairy eyeball, which is somewhat ironic. But um, you do have a good hairy eyeball. Thank you. You do. I've been working on it. Working with you has really allowed me to cult- <laughs> cultivate. <laughs> That. So what I'm thinking um, is, uh, as that my favorite chair would say, I don't think I'm hearing anything new. <laughs> Thank you. So that is the process. You hit yeah. send at your desk and you get, you know, however many months later, your summary sheets back in both at IES and NIH. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the general process. For people who work at NIH and might be listening to this and are tearing your hair out and saying that's not mm-hmm. how it works, I apologize in advance, or in the past, I guess, since I've already said it. But, you know, these are broad strokes about how the system works. Mm-hmm. But what we're going to talk about next in part two of this is so you get your reviews and their strengths and their weaknesses and their scores. And how, how do you, how, how are those assigned? How, if Greg and I sit down, we've reviewed hundreds and hundreds of these. You know, you've got Miles Davis, you've got, you know, the cat. How do you approach a grant? How do you evaluate it? And that's going to be disc two of the wall. Nice. Or Return of the Jedi to the Empire Strikes Back. Or. No. Aren't those the same movie? <laughs> They're totally different. The second one has an Ewok picnic at the end. <laughs> um, so one one other thing I will insert before you move to disc two will just be what happens after it's over. And you mentioned something about tightening up the comments that reviewers have that reviewers provide. You don't know what happens with regard to the funding when you're in the room. So anybody out there who thinks that at the end of the day, everybody says, oh, that's funded, that's not funded, we have no idea. Um, well, it's not entirely true. We have some sense of what was rated better and what was rated um, worse, but we don't know where the funding line is. So it goes back into the agency, NIH, IES, whatever, and then they have to check, you know, they have to go back through them. They have to double check things like, 
gender issues and uh, ethnicity issues of participants when they're human subjects. They have to check a bunch of budget stuff. And oftentimes, uh, in fact, most of the time, it is not the reviewer's job to comment on budget. There might be some questions that are raised, but all of that's happening at an administrative level. So when we leave the room, we don't know what's going to get funded or not. That's going to take place in the time that comes after. And that's the same with NIH. Yep, yeah, exactly. And maybe even, and, and this might be at IES, but it, it, it might even be a step further at NIH, is we are intellectually slapped by the SRO that we are to not discuss budget, that we are not to discuss, you know, did they ask for an inordinate amount of time or money for, you know, some machine or for, you know, whatever is that, that it's explicit. Now, we can talk about scope and feasibility. So mm-hmm. it's fair to say, well, this is a five-year application, although I, I worry that this is an excessive amount of time uh, to you know, complete the aims, but you'll actually be chastised pretty pointedly if you said, "Well, I'm worried that they have a hundred thousand dollars set aside for an RA. I can hire an RA for half that." The SRO will jump on you for that. So you're exactly right. And to reemphasize Greg's point, is this is all about the science. Is it an important question? Is it an interesting question? Is it a timely question? Is the study designed in a way to give a valid and reliable empirical about, you know, test of uh, hypotheses? And then when that process is done, a whole nother system comes online of what are NIH priorities? What are institute specific priorities? And, you know, is this something that they want to dedicate limited funds to? And that has nothing to do with this process that we're describing. Mm -hmm. And we are sworn to confidentiality, right? Exactly. So after we have left the room, they, you know, I I can hear the spiel in my head that is given by um, whether it's the person who is the head of IES or the thing that I will say at the end of a panel, just remind people that. You know, when you're out in the hallways, when you're getting back on the med- metro, when you're driving home, when you're on your 35-minute flight from <laughs> National back. Uh, they don't even have yeah. a drink service you know, because it's too short. It's just, it's not possible. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, you don't talk about it. And that means that I interact with people whose papers I know have been reviewed, although for the most part, when I interact with those people, it means I was on a conflict of interest and out of the room. But... I interact with people they know I was on the panel or chairing the panel that they submitted things to. And you don't raise the eyebrow. You don't give them the wink, wink, nudge, yeah. nudge. You just, you know, this is uh, this is professional. So if you're out there and you think that there are backroom information slipping out, we try to do everything possible to keep everything, as you said, about the science, about the process, and, and preserve the integrity. We take this incredibly seriously. This is a huge responsibility. Um, and I hope that any listeners might take some comfort in that. And I, I might say then on that note, we would look ahead to the next episode that you already telegraphed very nicely, where we try to talk a bit more about the rating process and at least as much some of the things that we as reviewers Uh, like to see in the proposals and don't like to see in the proposals. On that point, we hope you found it interesting and jump to part two and we'll talk about the reviews itself. So thanks for your time and take care. All right. Thanks, everybody. Be sure to check us out on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever platform you get your other clearly less favorite podcasts and leave us a review and be sure to tell your friends. Uh, oh, also check us out on Twitter where our handle is at Quantitude Pod. You can also visit our website, quantitudethepodcast.org, to check out previous episodes and other really cool stuff. You've been listening to Quantitude, contributing to the intellectual world like Denny's does to the culinary world. Today's episode is brought to you by Big Data. Yeah, we don't know what it means either. And by the .05 level, ruling people's lives with an arbitrariness not seen until the current administration. And by your scholarly publication, H-Index, celebrating your research accomplishments one self-citation at a time. This is most definitely not NPR. <laughs>